Philosophy in general is rather too often abstract and impractical. Ludwig Wittgenstein is a wonderful case in point. Not only does his philosophy swallow itself in an abstract singularity of sorts, it says that all philosophy, including itself, is pointless. And once you understand this fact of reality, you can do away with the whole thing. But besides that, Wittgenstein's work has a complete poverty of examples, instances of where this stuff is practically useful. But of course, he has to say that. He has to leave all that out. He has to leave out actual philosophical problems, instances where the philosophy is needed, because it's counter to his central thesis. His central thesis being, the whole project is pointless anyway. <laughs> Wittgenstein's first work, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, usually just called the Tractatus, is a list of statements set out like some sort of formal proof. It's intended to be a proof of a kind, leading to the final statement in the work that, quote, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent, end quote. So he basically concluded that the purported subject matter of philosophy, indeed anything outside of mathematics and science and maybe history, that kind of thing, referred to stuff which were outside the facts of reality that we get from our senses or from reason. So it was pointless to talk about those things because words could not properly label them. They may or may not exist, but we can't speak about them in some technical sense because the function of language is to talk about the content of our senses and thoughts. So much for Wittgenstein. His only other real work of note was Philosophical Investigations, a book claimed as ranking number one, literally number one, by college and university teachers in the US as the most important work of the 20th century. But again, that book, it's all about language. He talks about language games. He talks about family resemblances as the way words get their meanings. He talks about the duck-rabbit illusion and beetles in boxes, if you can believe it. Basically, lots of thought experiments, lots of philosophy in the abstract disconnected from actual problems in science or mathematics or anywhere else. It's stuff about language. It's not concrete. Well, unless you're a linguist or something. It's very narrow and it doesn't help anyone much in practical terms. Wittgenstein is the philosopher's philosopher. He writes about what we can't know without really grappling with what it means to know something. So he tells you all the way in which we can't know something without telling you how it is we actually know. <laughs> he conjures up abstract thought experiments like, well, what if everyone's carrying around a box but they can't look inside, but they refer to what's inside the box as a beetle? Well, big mystery. To what does the word beetle refer? That's the kind of thing so many philosophers engage in. Purely abstract stuff. Beetles, which might or might not exist, said to be in boxes that cannot be opened. I mean, this is the most important work of the 20th century, according to some? This is, in a sense, why Popper is not the philosopher's philosopher. He is the anti-philosopher philosopher. And I mean that in the best possible way. He's completely at odds in so many ways with all other philosophers and their philosophies. Because... He's talking about meaty stuff, concretes. You open up random pages in his books or his papers and he's writing about what Darwin or Einstein did, what Newton and Descartes were considering, what their problems were, Dirac, Faraday, Planck, Pythagoras, Plato, Ptolemy. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface here. He's like a scientist of the history of ideas, a scientist of knowledge. He is looking at what is done how it's done, and how those guys explained what they were doing and perhaps clearing up misconceptions they had. He's going to the history of ideas and solving problems. It's not out there in the ether, in the abstract land of how words might or might not behave, so to speak. It's not the science of words. It's a science of ideas. 
Okay, I'm pushing the limits of the term science there, but you know what I mean. He's actually investigating, explaining, theorizing, testing, refuting, and the clarity, the clarity when you compare what he says, how he writes, to anyone else is just striking. Yes, I know people read Popper, especially after they've read Deutsch, and they say, oh, it's very dry and it's hard to understand. Well, yes, yes, relative to Deutsch, Popper is dry and more difficult to understand. He's a product of his day and he is writing for his contemporaries and there's a style and then language changes over time. There's a style. And of course, some people will read Deutsch having been used to, well, look, I don't want to mention names, but let's just say other works in the nonfiction section. And sure, they're often narratives, uh, potted histories of ideas and stuff. Uh, one gets the impression with certain so-called popular science works that barely deserve the title, perhaps, that the author is a frustrated screenwriter. It's almost as if they need a plot and characters and so on. But Deutsch, on the other hand, is giving you the ideas rapid fire at high density. And as everyone observes, you know, his works are completely counter to oh, what you usually know coming into them, which is also like Popper. The first and foremost reason for writing the works, in the case of Popper and Deutsch, it's not to entertain, but a lot of popular science and a lot of nonfiction stuff out there today is to do that. And Popper and Deutsch are informing you in an efficient way. Now, I just happen to have a preference. Personally, I do think they're entertaining because they're thrilling. But yes, I guess I've been persuaded that perhaps some extra background knowledge is needed at times. I was already coming from a physics philosophy background and so was impressed because there simply is nothing like the fabric of reality and the beginning of infinity elsewhere in existence. Perhaps Gerdel Escher-Bach gets closest, but even then, not really. I read Popper as part of my university studies, but it was very limited and was in a context where I had to read a bunch of other stuff as well alongside him. And he was sort of treated like this minor fringe character. Wittgenstein was the real guy. Hume, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Berkeley, Kant, the classics, in other words, from the 17th and 18th centuries. And of course, all the ancients, they were the real stuff. The 20th century was basically Wittgenstein, like I say, with uh, minor appearances by Kripke, Quine, Feyerabend and Lakatosh and some others. So to be honest, it was only once I'd read The Fabric of Reality in 1997 or so, and then I read the recommended reading at the end of that book. And first on the list was something by Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, so I read that. And then uh, I really liked that, so I read his book, The Extended Phenotype. That wasn't on the list, but I also thought that was great. Then I skipped to Conjectures and Refutations by Popper, which I had picked up in the university library once or twice before in order to write some essay or other, which I've long since forgotten. But I remember reading that book and thinking just how clear it was, relatively speaking, by comparison to the other philosophical works we were expected to read as part of our philosophy studies. The language it was modern by philosophical standards. And this guy Popper was talking about actual science, which none of the others ever really did. The he talked about the discovery of Neptune, Hertz's discovery of electromagnetic waves, Lavoisier's experiments with combustion, Kepler, Galileo, Fresnel, Faraday, Maxwell, they kept appearing, they kept cropping up. I mean, perhaps not every single page, but there was meat on the bones, as I keep on saying. He's talking about how this or that was conjectured and how about how the experiment was then done, the specific experiment that ruled out something or other. It wasn't a thought experiment, it was an experiment with real-life rays of light and glass lenses and concepts like refraction. As a physics student, this was clearly the stuff. It wasn't abstract, it was concrete. Actual places where philosophy explained what the scientists did 
and how science therefore made progress. He didn't care about definitions and the ultimate foundations of knowledge. He wrote about those things, but just to say, all of that is a pointless distraction, and he explained why. We want to know what this knowledge stuff is and how it grows and changes the world. And he wrote about optimism and liberty and how authorities who claim to know the truth were a dangerous kind of a thing. And not just in religion, in politics and science, everywhere. And I mean, in comparison to Wittgenstein and Kant and many of the classics, it's just night and day. Now again, personally, I quite like Descartes and Leibniz, but I like them now, in retrospect, in the same way that I kind of like Lord of the Rings. Maybe not quite as much as Lord of the Rings, but the same sort of thing. The language that is used and the journey that you go on. You have to suspend your sense of disbelief, of course, and you just go on the journey, all the while knowing it's not real. This is all a myth. But of course, myths can teach you something. Even in myth, truth can be found. And besides, I like to know what Popper is talking about, who these people are he's referring to. So knowing a little bit about people like Descartes and Leibniz helps with that because he is referring to them a lot. He is referring to the so-called classic and the ancient philosophers. So I get that if you don't know much philosophy already or the history of ideas, then reading Popper has that drawback somewhat. He keeps referring to these other usually much older philosophers, which I suppose kind of makes him a little bit like Tolkien with Lord of the Rings or George R.R. Martin with Game of Thrones. If you're not on top of things early on as you're reading these books, then the rate at which you're encountering new characters can be off-putting. You just get lost in the new names and places. So what I'm doing today here is reading from one of Popper's works, having a bit of a refresher after all of the critiquing I've been doing. Not to say I'm not going to be critiquing today, I will be, but just not in the same style because, hey, there's not much to critique, there's just a lot to celebrate. This particular work is called On the Sources of Knowledge and Ignorance. It's about how the two main approaches to where knowledge comes from, you know, does it come from an empirical means via our senses, or does it come from pure reason or some combination of both? And if it does, how? What do the other philosophers say? All of that stuff. This is really about the history of ideas, about how we know what we know and what ways people have traditionally said how it is we know what we know. Now, I'm doing this because I was reading this piece again, and just so many passages not only stand the test of time in terms of substance, but style. The content here is relevant even today, and the style, the clarity. Well, that's one thing, but for me, some of these passages are powerful because of the sharpness and poignancy of what he says. Now, as I say, I'm not just going to fawn over him. There are some places where I kind of disagree, where I'd love to speak to him about why he wasn't going all in, so to speak, where he might have been conceding to his contemporaries or the possible objections that were going to crop up in his mind. So this won't just be me reading and giving uncritical praise. It's a celebration of Popper's work for sure and how it is head and shoulders above others, for so many reasons. Now, this particular piece can be found in a few different places, but notably it begins the book Conjectures and Refutations, the first book of Popper's recommended by David Deutsch in The Fabric of Reality. So, though I read it years ago after reading that work by David on his recommendation effectively, it's taken until now for me to finally come back to it again in full. And I think with new eyes. Here, he is solving actual problems in philosophy and epistemology right before your eyes. But it's just a preface to a much more substantial philosophy about how knowledge is generated and what he says, for example, in the rest of Conjectures and Refutations about science. So here he's He's sort of just setting the scene by going to the heart of matters about the errors other philosophers make 
And so he names them and explains their positions, giving lots of references, lots of examples, lesson there for any other philosophers. And this is nice because for a non-philosopher, he's teaching you about the history of ideas in philosophy. So you don't really actually need to know in this particular part what Hume and Descartes and Spinoza wrote about and what they were interested in because he'll tell you. And then he'll tell you how they were wrong and what the right stuff is. 